I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Brett Shavers. Brett is a consultant to corporations and government agencies in computer-related cases, as well as being the author of several computer forensics books. Brett began his career in digital forensic investigations and law enforcement and was trained by the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the National White Collar Crime Center, and a multitude of forensic software manufacturers. Brett has taught over a thousand individuals in law enforcement, colleges, and law firms in topics including high-tech investigative methods and forensic analysis, as well as gives presentations on high-tech investigations on a regular basis. His prior law enforcement duties included assignments in state and federal task forces, with investigations spanning multiple countries and states where his cases targeted career criminals and international crime organizations. In this episode, we discuss starting forensics in law enforcement, his approaches to investigations, what makes a good DFIR examiner, forensic tools, the Windows forensic environment, book writing advice, IoT surveillance, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Brett, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? It's a pleasure, and I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Well, great. You know, I I, kind of want to get started with your background. And I noticed if you go to your site, brettshavers.cc, you have some interesting background and just some of the highlights of swim with sharks, um, climb mountains on two continents, worked as a jailer in an old smelly slammer, dined with crime bosses and partied with outlaw motorcycle gangs, hired as a hitman, uh, busted down doors. Uh, lots of kind of cool tales. How how did you get started there? What was the kind of background of that? And how did that parlay into digital forensics? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a really small town with a population of like 500. So uh, I really wanted to go out and do something kind of wild and crazy. So I did. I, uh, you know, joined the Marines and got into the police work after that. And I figured out one day that a, a computer won't stick a gun in my stomach. So that's kind of where I got the idea of getting into the computer world was uh, after doing some undercover work and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, started I uh, started the digital forensics lab for my police department and did a lot of self-learning and took a lot of training and that sort of thing. And that's kind of led me, that got me into the, uh, the forensic world. So that was the, the start. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I did some some brief task force uh, work on the civil service side at one time. And my wife said, listen, if you get shot, you know, rating something, I think it was like... Um, like kids' toys or something, we were seizing computers. Because if you get shot over kids' toys, please don't come home. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've had those conversations myself. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, you know, how did kind of being in the military and, and law enforcement, how did the kind of non tech prepare for you to be a good forensic examiner? I think just being driven. Um, I mean, the Marines is, you know, their whole philosophy is, you know, never give up, never quit kind of attitude and mission accomplishment. You know, it's it's the number one rule. And that kind of led over into police work. You know, I was on SWAT for a while and, you know, instructor and different things. And and when I got into um, as a detective in investigations, I did, you know, narcs and vice. So I uh, 
did a lot of pretty neat cases where we didn't know who the criminals were, really. You know, we had, you know, whether it be a murder or a burglary or something to that effect, or drug dealers who, um, you know, using burner phones and that sort of thing. So my goal was always to find out who did it, you know, and find the evidence for that. So I think just the tenacity of, you know, tracking down people. Um, you know, I did some terrorism-related cases when I was assigned to ICE and some organized crime cases. And so when you're looking at a massive amount of information from, you know, an, organ an international organized crime, you know, uh, case, for example, I think it all helps for forensics because the amount of data you have to put together, you know, coherently, it it really helped when I got into the, you know, the computer forensic world at the time. So I think everything I did just kind of led up to it because the, um, you know, the mental aspect of it, you know, the investigative mindset is the same as far as trying to solve cases. And when you're looking at a computer, you're trying to figure out what happened and who did it. So that's kind of, I think it all blended together. Yeah, and you wrote the it was a, the 2014 Forensic Forecast Book of the Year title, Placing the Suspect Behind the Keyboard. You know, kind of why that title, and it is different than most of the digital forensic books that are out there, is the content geared in any kind of certain way? What is, I, when I was working NARCs, and I had, when I first started working NARCs, I had um, just patrol cases. You know, someone got arrested on the street with drugs, and I would, you know, be assigned the, the case, a patrol case, basically. And some of the cases that I would get would be, you know, some crack, for example, in a, in a center console of a car that had three people in it and no one owned the car. So I, you know, put my hands up in the air saying, well, who do I charge? You know, do I charge everybody? I mean, they all denied knowledge of it. And do I charge no one? So that was the uh, impetus of, well, how do you prove somebody did something, you know, based on what you have? And then when I got into, you know, the digital forensics world, you know, I had a few difficult cases of, um, who who actually was touching the computer, you know, out of, out of these 10 people. So the book idea started when I was doing drug cases, trying to find out who to charge because I had to prove who actually it was. And when I wrote the book, I just based it on, you know, the, the computer world, you know, com computer facilitated crimes or computer crimes and just detailing how to go about, you know, the mental mindset, uh, uh, where to find evidence, how to find evidence, how to you know, build it up, build a case where a jury can say, well, of course that person did it because all the evidence points to that person. So that was the impetus of the book. You know, it's kind of light on forensics because you can spend, you know, an entire book on registry forensics, for example. So it's a broad overview of start to finish of, you know, you have a cyber case and this is how you run with it and finish it. And I didn't put, I didn't intend it to be for the easy cases because we, we always tend to have a lot of easy cases. Uh, especially in e-discovery where uh, you know, an employee does something and you're given the hard drive and, well, nothing to prove besides find out what happened. So this book is written for the attention of you don't know who did it or you suspect who did it and how can you prove it? So that's what the whole book was uh, written for. Right, because it leads more into intent. And I think you you probably had that, you know, similar questions that I've had, you know, from clients or, or from attorneys is, can you say so-and-so definitively did something with this computer? I say, well... This is what I can see based on the evidence. I can put enough data points together, but I wasn't there. I can't, right. I wasn't a witness to it, so I can't say that, but this is what I'm finding. And it's, it is kind of a, a pitfall I see that some examiners kind of get pulled into a lot of times is, you know, they want to make that kind of leap of faith, um, but they, they shouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bad thing to say uh, this person did this unless you have some strong evidence. I mean, a video you know, a recording of 
you know, the screen and the person at the computer and, and a witness to boot, right? But other than that, it's right, it's always, uh, you know, the, the computer shows this activity and this user account was logged in. And it's the most you can say, but like I said, for the book that placing suspect behind a keyboard in the subsequent book, Hiding Behind a Keyboard, is what other evidence can you get to, you know, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person you think did it, did it. And it's not just to show the jury um, who did it, it's to show yourself so you can eliminate you know, suspects who are, didn't do it, right? You want to find the right one. So getting evidence from outside the computer is just as important as the evidence on the computer. What would be some examples of some things that you would get outside of the computer um, that you covered in the third book? Well, some, well, you know, smartphone devices, mobile devices have, I mean, practically everything <laughs> that you need. So, if, so let's say we have a desktop computer that did some kind of crime, at a house, for example, right, or even a Starbucks or something to that effect, and to prove that the owner of that laptop um, probably was on that laptop, you'd look at the smartphone and, you know, you have GPS, you know, geolocation data from the smartphone. Um, maybe there's a credit card purchase at that store at that location, uh, or even a gas station purchase from across the street, you know, things outside of the activity on that laptop to place that person there. So if you can show that the smartphone was there, and, you know, there's nothing to indicate that it's a shared you know, device. It's, it's usually owned by that person. And all the geolocation points to that phone being possessed by that person at that Starbucks, for you know, as an example, and that laptop was there. Then that kind of leads everyone to believe, well, well, who else could have done it besides that person? So it's outside the laptop evidence to, you know, tie the person to the computer. So a lot of what it sounds like you're saying, too, is it really it's important to develop that kind of investigative mindset to kind of step back and look beyond just the the, the physical computer digital devices. Yeah, I think as an investigator, um, you have to. And and like when I started the forensic unit at my police department, there was no forensics, right? It was um, I was assigned to a customs task force at the time, and and I was looking into forensics, and you know I got to go to Fletzy for a few months and get a lot of training. And when I brought up the idea to my department, it was kind of poo pooed as far as um, who needs to look at computers, right? <laughs> so. Um, with some grant money and that sort of thing, I started up the lab. And the first case that I did was a pretty substantial case. It was just that one felony charge on a, a child, a rapist, rape of a child. But going through the computers, um, there's probably a dozen other felony charges. So, you know, just for a week's worth of work, um, we had a, a substantial case and identified, I think, four or five more victims in that case just because of the forensics. So as an investigator, I was looking at beyond just a computer at that time because there was other evidence in the case. It was the actions, you know, the suspect raped a child from one and other items that all came together as a case. So when I wrote that book, I'm, I really tried to put in there that if you're looking at the computer, you have to think of the relationship of what you find on the computer, how it relates to the physical world. And if you're doing the, the physical world investigations, for example, you have to also think of um, was technology used and where could I find that evidence on computers? So if you're doing both, you really have to have an open mind that you're getting all the evidence in both worlds, physical and the electronic world. And if you're only doing one, if you're only doing, if you're just a the forensic analysis, for example, it's easy to get caught up in just a computer, you know, and just a hard drive with a smartphone and just be a data recovery specialist and pr you know, push out a spreadsheet, right? So I just try to, to, uh, to remind that it's more than just looking at, oh, there's a registry entry. You know, it's it's how did it get there? Who put it there and why was it there? So that's the investigative mindset yes, idea. Certainly the the context becomes very important at that at that stage. 
Right. Okay, so you know, kind of, you, you touched on you know, starting a, a forensic lab. So imagine I want to start a computer forensic practice and trying to develop a budget. So I'm guessing I need a budget for five to ten thousand dollars in forensic software, maybe another ten to fifteen thousand in hardware just to run the software, and spend a few weeks and several more thousands per examiner on training for the software. You know, at least this has been the standard approach for many practitioners and organizations. And all there are there alternatives, and I have to admit this is kind of a baited question. Well, the more money, the better. <laughs> the more money, the easier. Um, and I think everyone does it, you know, the best that they can. If you have unlimited budget, obviously, we're not saying unlimited, but if you have enough money, you can afford, you know, the software, the hardware, and the training. Um, but if not, um, it's it's a tough gig to get into on your own, just because of the expense. Um, you know, if you want to buy the bare minimum, you need more than just one suite, for example whether it be FTK and NCASE or NCASE and XWAYS, for example. Um, if you're just buying one suite because that's all you can afford and one laptop and one write blocker and, uh, and one training class, uh, it's going to be a very risky venture, right? So it just depends on uh, the resources available. Uh, shoestring budgets are pretty tough if you're trying to start out. Obviously, open source only goes so far because you – especially in the private world, you have you know clients that demand NCASE, right? right. So. You know, regardless if it's better for that case or not, it's just one of those things you have to deal with. So um, I think it depends on the person and the background and uh, what the intention is. Yeah, I think what I was kind of driving at too is a little bit is that there, but there are alternatives. And, and you know, you've written books and published a lot on X-Ways. And X-Ways tends to be a more, I would say, a, a affordable uh, suite, but very powerful. Um, so what what's your kind of, what, why did you gravitate to kind of X-Ways as a platform, that's something that you've at least uh, published on and, and written about as much as you have. Well, I used uh, WinHex um, many years ago, right? And then uh, I think it was in 2004 when um, X, uh, X-Ways released the you know, forensic version, X-Ways Forensics. And I contacted Stefan uh, Fleischman and actually hosted. I, we asked, uh, my partner and I asked, would you ever mind considering or consider mind um, a training course? And, you know, teaching X-Ways forensics. And he agreed, and we set up the first course for X-Ways in Seattle in, I think, 2005. And just looking at it then and comparing, I was, you know, working, doing police work at the time. and had NKs, FTK, and everything else. And look what X-Ways could do at the time. I thought, wow, it's faster. Um, not necessarily easier. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Um, but it's faster, and, and it's cheaper. And we, we could buy more X-Ways licenses. So that was the start with X-Ways. And... One class I went to at uh, Fletzy, the you know Federal Law Enforcement uh, Training Center, um, I was sitting next to a NCASE uh, guy, and the other side of me was an was an FTK guy, and and we could choose whatever software we wanted to use for this image, and I I chose Xways at the time, and so we're doing data, a data carving exercise, and then uh, my image came up with a lot of pornography, not child pornography, but it came up with a lot of uh, adult pornography in this training class. And I thought, well, I guess that's the kind of case we're looking at here. It's a pornography case. And the two guys next to me, one using FTK, one using NCASE, uh, they weren't recovering the same images. So one of the instructors, an IRS agent, was uh, walking behind me. She thought I was surfing the net for porn. And I go, and this is your image you gave us. And sure enough, FTK and NCASE both did not recover those images, which now I'm, I would not venture to say that would be the case. But at that time, um, X-Ray's actually recovered 
things that those two didn't. And that's and I emailed Stefan from the class and I said, guess what? <laughs> Go on your x-rays. I did a pretty good job today in, in the training class. So that kind of made me say, well, you know what? Um, it did a good job today. I think I'm going to stick with it. And I did. And I've kept up with NCASE, obviously, and FTK. I kind of gave up on for a little while ago. But um, x-rays have been the primary mostly because of doing things like that. Yeah, and it's it's one of those great tools. I've used it for a lot of uh, investigation myself, but it's it doesn't necessarily get as much uh, airplay or attention as some of the bigger suites, most notably to the marketing budget. But I also love what you're kind of the first paragraph in the intro to the book that you and Eric Zimmerman wrote, uh, the X-Ways Forensics Practitioner's Guide. You know, basically, it's just kind of paraphrase. You know, it says it looks different than other tools, and people think it's just a hex editor, but it, it can certainly do just about everything it does it and i won't say that x-rays is the end all to be all because there are certain things that if i have a case that's if it's just an email intensive case for example i i typically i'm not going to use x-rays you know i'm going to use something more focused for email and it, and it depends on the type of email and it depends on different things but i think generally speaking um you know 75 percent of what you need to be done you know, 75 to 100, depending on your case, can be with X-rays. But specific things sometimes are better just to pull out of the image with X-rays and, you know, throw another tool on it. Actually, so if you if you kind of compared it to some of the other tools, again, because I think a lot of people don't don't have an appreciation for it, what are some of the advantages and maybe disadvantages that X-rays has comparative to maybe some of the other suites? Well, I think speed is a big one. Um, you know, process, if you got to do processing, some tools, uh, they just take forever. I mean, literally for, forever, it seems. And X-Ways does do a lot faster processing. And as far as the hardware goes, X-Ways can run on bare minimum hardware. And not that, yeah, I say you should use old computers, but um, you can use it on practically any computer. And it's it can be run as a portable application, which is kind of a big deal. If you have, I mean, I had engagements of, you know, let's say 50 plus computers in an office building. And if you need to do triage on those computers, um, you can use, you know, a triage tool, you know, purchase another triage tool, or you can boot to, uh, you know, WinFE with X-Ways on it. And you can triage the computers with, with X-Ways. I mean, it's a full forensic suite. So it's beyond a triage. It's as far as you want to go in that triage from just a simple scan, or if you want to go deeper, um, you have that ability. Whereas with um, FTK, it's... It's impossible to run it as a portable application from a CD. You know, same with the with case when you're looking at that. So those, I mean, that's kind of a, a a major difference in my mind when I'm dealing with a lot of machines. You know, and other little things are easier with case and uh, you know FTK, just just because of buttons. You know, some buttons are easier than X ways and. Some things are harder in X-rays where you're trying to find the button. So is it a right click? You know, is it a menu? And if you don't know where it's at, you can actually spend some extra time trying to find it. But once you learn it, like anything, right, riding a bike, driving a car, uh, once you learn it, then it's easy. Yeah, and one of the other advantages I found with X-rays, too, was, was as you kind of said, dealing with Stefan and the, and the team in Germany, is usually when you, you need something or you request something, they tend to be very responsive, which is nice and not always so ordinary, and, and not just with forensic tools, but with most software products. They tend to be very uh, responsive to requests. Yeah, I've never seen responsiveness as much such as uh, X-Ways. When uh, Stefan was given the first class in Seattle, uh, you know, we were given suggestions, because X-Ways Forensic was brand new. It just came out version, I think, I 
can't remember the version, maybe um, 11 or 12 or something. And uh, he fixed, I mean, he was adding features at night. So we would give him some input of, oh, I wish you could do this, or maybe the menu bar could be over here. And and the next day in class, it's changed. And I thought, wow, this is this is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, and, and even today, when you're asking for something that if it's broken, it's going to get fixed. And if it's something that you want X-Ways to do, most likely it already does it. And you'll be told right away that it already does it. You got to right click it <laughs> or you got to, it's over here. And if it doesn't do it, if it's something that's doable, then it, it gets done pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. Um, and kind of stepping aside from tools, there was a good quote that you had, I think from one of your blogs and it was, it was most recently referenced at a, at a a presentation I saw, but it's, it's not the machine, but the examiner that does the forensic work. Uh, and I thought that was a, a good quote. And if you can just kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, I've always believed that um, it's the person. I mean, if you look at Microsoft as a company, uh, Microsoft you know puts out great products, but it's really the people, you know, that are in there pushing out the product. And it's the same thing when, you, when there's a, if you see a major case on the news, you know, some major uh, criminal organization was taken down by this department or this agency. Well, it's not the agency, it's the person. And no matter where you work, what your job is, there's always, you know, one, one percent of the people that really do 90 percent of the work. Right. I mean, they're just really driven and, and hard charging. And it doesn't matter really what their background is or what their training is. It's the, uh, you know, t- the tenacity to get things done. So when I say it's not the tools or, um, you know, the hardware, that sort of thing, um, anyone if with the right mentality and, and mindset can do way more than they thought they could, particularly when it comes with investigations and even forensic analysis. So you don't need to have a PhD in computer science to discover a new artifact or tie an artifact, you know, to a potential suspect or person. And you don't have to be, you know, a federal agent. You can be a student and you can learn these things and you can do these things because it's, it's, it's your mind. It's your brain that does it. It's not um, a special badge in your pocket. It's not a, a coin in your pocket. It's, you know, it's not a cert on the wall. It's your brain that can do it. So I try to tell everybody that Picasso, for example, he could probably paint a masterpiece with some watercolors. And when you're a forensic anal- analysis or, or, or examiner or investigator, you should be able to do the job with whatever tools that you have. I mean, obviously you can't, you know, Microsoft Paint's not going to be able to let you do forensics, but pretty much anything that you can get your hands on, you should be able to do uh, the job just as good or, any, or better than anybody else. Definitely. So, you know, kind of stepping back, tell us about the first forensic lab you set up. You touched on it briefly before. What, how was that kind of set up in, in, on a shoestring budget? It was, uh, well, we had a storage closet. And, well, first off, I was turned down for the forensic lab just because uh, what's the big deal about computers, number one. And I was working drug cases going, I was traveling in and out of country, undercover cases, and I wanted to do this too. And I was kind of told I was, I was too busy. But anyway, I set it up anyway. So I, I commandeered a storage closet that literally had some brooms in it and a bunch of garbage. And it was probably uh, just enough room to put a desk in sideways. So, it, and it didn't even have a lock on the door. So I really had to make do with what I had. But once after the first case, um, then it became actually a real a real thing. So now the department has, I think, two examiners and they actually have computers and, and software as a, as a real uh, duty. But at the time, it was, it was a, not a rough start. It was just, it took a lot of time, effort, convincing, explaining, writing up memos and, you know, those sort of plans and budgets and put piecing together 
uh, a lab from old computer parts from the IES department, that sort of thing. But um, it was fun, and I'm, I'm glad I did it. I have a picture of it somewhere. I just can't find it. But it was just a – no kidding, it was a storage closet that was really small. And that, that was about it. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Again, kind of going back kind of to two points together, you know, with, with the right mindset, tenacity, passion, and, you know, some some ingenuity with the technology. You can really kind of get started with basic forensic examinations. It might take you a little bit longer, but you can you can get by. And you can do a good job. That's the, uh, the other part. You can do a better job than um, someone else who has all the tools and all the training, but they don't have the the mindset um, not maybe complacency is the issue or, or whatever the issue is, maybe just not the tenacity to, to get things done. But I said, a, a student can do a great job more so than someone else can. Yeah. So if somebody was kind of getting started in the field, what would be some of the advice you would give to them? Well, nowadays it's uh, go to college <laughs> and get a degree in cyber something, you know, forensic something, or even uh, programming. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, the old days, like when I got started was, um, when there really wasn't, there wasn't any degrees in forensics or, you know, cyber forensic related degrees. And it was from, you know, transferring over from the IT world or from the police world and, you know, working it that way. But I think nowadays it's the college degree requirement is going to be the first step. Um, if you can't do that, it's going to be a long, hard road to, um, you know, work your way into it, you know, meaning getting a job, you know, it's something to do with computers, obviously, and self-learning, taking some training classes, uh, reading a lot of books, and eventually trying to get into the field. Um, but then and the other option, I guess, if, if you are a, uh, I mean, I've seen some star computer people who uh, seem, they were born from a computer, I, I think, you know, and they, they, they speak computer programming natively. And they can write anything. Those are the exceptions, I believe. So if you're not an exception, obviously, um, I think college is probably the best route, just so you can check the box of being eligible for uh, employment in some places. And what are your thoughts on some of the certifications? I mean, there's dozens of them out there. Are, are those important in, in in your opinion? You know, I'm not a I'm not a fan of certifications unless it's required. If it's a job you're looking for that requires it, you know, they require you know, whatever certification. Then I say, yes, go ahead and get it, right? Spend whatever money it is. Um, if you don't have any experience, I think certifications are great because, I mean, if you don't have experience, you can't get experience. Um, you either get certifications or you don't have anything at all. So I would say, obviously, certifications are a boon for that. But I, I think for those who have been in the field for, you know, 10 years or 15 years, even five years, really, um, the certs really start to lose in their value uh, and less, you know, sentimental value, I guess, you want to put some search on your wall or initials behind your name. Because once you've, if you've testified in a hundred cases and, you know, people have gone to prison for your cases or people have been exonerated because of your cases, or you discovered these things, you've written software. I mean, you've done all these things or written books or all these other things. When you're testifying in court, those, those actions that you've done far outweigh any certification and outweigh any degree because you physically have done it and you can articulate it, you know, and you know what you're talking about and you have proven it. So in that aspect, I'd say certifications lose in value. But in the beginning, I would say that they, they could be pretty important as far as being employable, I guess would be the big one. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and you touched briefly, just you kind of said on, um, on, on testifying, you've testified on a, a number of cases. Um, what's some advice you would give for people that are kind of leery of testimony or unsure if they can do it? Um, what was your kind of early experiences like and how would you guide somebody in starting with testimony? Yeah, the best thing to do is do such a great case that it never goes to trial. That's the, uh, that's the first step. Um, and, you know, the books that I wrote on gathering evidence and you want to choke the defense with enough evidence that they don't want to go to trial. And that's going to eliminate, you know, 99 percent of your testimony. Some cases are going to go to trial, period, no matter what happens, no matter if you have no evidence or a lot of evidence, they're just going to go to trial. And for those, you just have to accept um, it's not going to be fun. Um, I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to be criticized. I'm going to be questioned. Um I'm going to be belittled or feel belittled. I mean, it's just that's the way it is. And as far as being prepared, uh, read some books. There's a few books on you know expert testimony. Um, there's not that much training on it, but I would suggest if you can find training, uh, it's good to be prepared with some uh, some training and testi- testifying. And besides, other than that, it's asking, um, asking other you know coworkers, peers who have testified their advice, and ask attorneys. Um, when you're, you know, qualifying someone as an expert, what are you looking for? What kind of questions do you ask? How, how do the, how does the jury, um, respond to these kind of answers and that sort of thing? So you really have to prepare if, if you don't prepare and you just walk in blind, um, you're going to get so dizzy on the stand. And by the time you realize what happened, it's going to be two days later. And the case is pretty much going to be, um, not in, not in, in your best, best judgment. So. Yeah. What it's funny as I find that a, a lot of people, uh, I mean, you have to go right, right with a certain amount of preparation, but, you know, it's knowing that likely the deposing attorney or, or the attorney that has you on the stand doesn't know as much as you do. Um, and if you've done a good job and you've written a good report to your to your earlier point, they're going to spend more time beating you up on the non-technical things of your report. They're, they're not even going to touch that. They're going to try to pick you apart personally and, and try to shake you that way because they don't know enough about registry forensics or timeline analysis or anything like that. Uh, so they spend a lot of time trying to make you feel bad about that. And the second point, I don't know if you've noticed, they'll, they'll try to take the black and white issues and make them gray and the gray issues, black and white to kind of throw you off your game. What well, is, and you know, I'm not an attorney, but I've, I've suffered through many, many uh, cross examinations, <laughs> but you know, they'll argue the facts, obviously, and then. But if you can't argue the facts and you win with the facts, then they'll argue, you know, the person. You know, they'll argue with the witness, and even if you beat them as the witness, they're just going to argue. Period. So I think just knowing that you're not going to have the opposing counsel tell you you did a great job and we totally agree with what you did. Thank you for coming. They're, that's not their job. That's not the, what they're there for. They're there to, to tear down what you've done, and they're, they're there to tear you down, and they're there to tear the case down and poke any holes in it as they can. So I think if you know that going up front, it doesn't make it too much easier, but at least sitting there you can realize, well, that he's doing his job or she's doing her job, and I'm doing my job. And hopefully this is going to be over soon, but you know, sometimes it's all day or, or many days. So yeah. it's 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 always an interesting experience <laughs> and it is yeah and you you also you know just kind of switching from switching gears a little bit you recently also had a blog post up that i enjoyed called it yeah the two worst games to play in infosec can you explain those two games and um why are they bad to play in the public sector and, and what are some of the consequences um 
actually there's there's probably more more than than two games to play uh, in InfoSec. And let me uh, take a quick look here. Which one I thought? I think it was it was you know the the pat you know, the, the hot potato you know kind of passing yeah. the bug. That's I've seen the hot potato game a lot in government work, and it's failure to take responsibility, right? Um, you know, they hold on to, I've seen that many times, you'll cross that bridge when we come to it kind of thing, and hopefully we don't come to it. And if you're lucky, um, you won't come to it, right? And your next person will. And with InfoSec, when we're, when we're um, not doing what we should be doing, right? Eventually something bad's going to happen. It's just like not changing the oil in your car. Uh, and you're going, let's say you're planning to sell the car next year, you figure I'm not going to change the oil this year. And you just run the engine dry, and you're just hoping that by the time um, you sell the car, it's still going to be running. But it's that chance of what's going to happen when you know you're still holding the car. So it's the same thing with technology and not spending the money or the time. Something's going to happen, and somebody's just going to have to pay for it, and they're going to be somebody's responsible for it. And that's one game not to play. Yeah, and in other words, it's just kind of just knowing that those bad things are going to happen, and it's just it's. It's still kind of amazing how many organizations will uh, spend more later um, on the bad thing as opposed to the preventative measures that that could be a fraction of the cost. Yeah, prevention is never, or it's not never, but it's not that often the big priority. I mean, even I mean, you can compare it to um, eating hamburgers every day, hamburgers and French fries and soda every day. Um, you're not going to die of a heart attack that day. And maybe years down the line. So when your health is bad after a lifetime of eating fast food, um, well, then you have to pay a lot of money for health concerns, right? But you know, prevention is, well, let's not eat that stuff. <laughs> let's do some exercise, eat some good foods. So same thing with InfoSec. Um, you can not do the things you're supposed to do, but eventually you know, the bill is going to come to fix the things that could have been prevented. Yeah, essentially you, you pay for it one way or the other. <laughs> right, yeah. And one of the other things you kind of talked about uh, contributions to to the community, and one of the things that you did was the the Windows Forensic Environment Program, or, or at least contributed to some of the training on that. How what's the kind of status of that, and is, is there going to be more work done in that? What well, is I uh, I just released one course uh, placing a suspect behind a keyboard, and it's like thirteen hour course based on the two books that I wrote, placing a suspect behind a keyboard and hiding behind a keyboard. So that's done, and now I'm doing the Windows FE update. And for the past months, I've been working with the developer of um, you know the WinFE script program for WinBuilder, and we have it down to a, a very minimal light build that you can have it built in less than five minutes. So we're putting that together, and I'm adding some Linux to it as well, building your own uh, distro in Linux, so you can custom design your Linux distro. So it's coming. It's just uh, been a lot of uh, work to put together, a lot of testing. We had a, a beta group to test WinFE to try to break it, and we think we couldn't break it. So I think I think it works pretty good. So I'll, it's coming pretty soon, and I'll post about it, obviously. And uh, I think it's WinFE still has a place, you know, in the world of forensics. Not as much as it did before, but it definitely still everything has a place. And I think WinFE uh, still has a pretty good seat there at the table. Yeah, definitely, and, and for yeah, for those that don't know, it's a, it's a bootable Windows environment, uh, forensic environment that allows you. It could do more than just imaging, though, right? You, you can actually also package in some of the tools like Xways and FTK Imager, correct? You can, and you know, it's it's if you the the name Windows Forensic Environment, it sounds so like amazing, and 
just as a side note, when um, Troy Larson at Microsoft, when he you know he developed it, and when he initially de- developed it, it was only a registry, two registry changes, and it's gone farther than that now. But at the time, he, he uh, I met him at, in a, a conference, I believe it was, and he said, uh, "Hey, what would you what would you think of a Windows forensic environment?" And I said, "Oh my gosh, an operating system, a forensic operating system from Microsoft." I said, "I would buy it today." <laughs> so uh, he gave me the instructions on how to build it, and I go. You know, he emailed it to me and I went, what in the world? And basically, it's, it's a WinPE, and it's just made forensic by two registry changes. And I went, oh, my gosh. I go, this is what he was talking about? And I was so disappointed. I didn't even touch it for months. I said, oh, gosh. I, I was so, op- you know, looking at forward to a whole operating system. And uh, by the time I really put it together and then I tried it, I said, oh, my gosh, Troy was right. <laughs> I go, this really is a big deal. Because you can, it's a WinPE, it's a bootable, you know, minimal Windows operating system um, OS, and you can put portable applications on it, such as X-Ways Forensics or, or other portable apps on it. So you can boot a computer just like a Linux forensic distro, but the difference is you can use Windows-based tools. And I think that's the big thing with WinFE versus a Linux distro, because there are some Linux distros that have, you know, hundreds of uh forensic apps on it already pre-made, pre-built, just download the ISO and you're good to go. But what I found, I, I've given a lot of training on um, like first responder training and we, we would build a WinFE and we'll put some Windows tools on it, some you know law enforcement only tools at some, some points. So anyone can use it because practically everyone knows Windows. Not that many people know Linux. So as far as a, uh, a tool that can be used by you know the vast majority of people, including first responders, uh, WinFE is super. And for the forensic examiners who like using, um, you know, X-Ways, for example, you can boot to WinFE, use X-Ways to image. And if you wanted, you can do a full exam right there under WinFE on that computer as well. And otherwise, you can take the image out, you know, as you would with a Linux distro. Yeah, it has great scalability for that, both from the user's perspective, but the fact that you can then you know, essentially image 100 machines if you have 100, you know, right. uh, USB drives, it's, it, right. it scales very well in that. So, so that's, it's, it's such a, you know, kind of a great project that you've kind of given back to the community, but you also have a blog, you've created online courses, you teach at schools, publish books, speak regularly. Why did you decide to be such a contributor to the forensic field, uh, as opposed to just a spectator? You know, I, I think everyone is different, and that's just me. I've always, um, I've always presented. When I was, I think, 18 years old in the Marines, I became an instructor, and then I became an instructor of something else. And when I went to police work, I was an instructor in, in different things. And you know, and I teach at the University of Washington for forensic programs. So I, I think people who um, like to teach do, and I, I like to also do things too. You know, I like to, I don't want to teach something I don't know, and I don't want to teach something that I read in a book. So I like to. Uh, try something new and, you know, master it the best that I can. And if I can master it enough where I feel that I know it well enough, that I can explain it and teach it to others, then, you know, I get satisfaction at, at being able to teach other people um, how to do some neat things. And especially when I'm teaching law enforcement. And because um, I've given classes just this year where um, in the class I'd go over a point um, and I'd say, well, you know, if you have a case and here's just an idea, you could try something. And I had a detective in the back of the room I mean, his head just popped up, you know, and his eyes are, you know, huge. And he goes, oh, my gosh, you know, like, like that. And during a break, he said um, he had to run back and, you know, check something on an old case. And he came back the next day and 
for the next day of the class. And he said, basically, that one tip turned a suicide case into a homicide case. And I said, it's pretty cool. So um, being able to do that and show people that, you know what, you can always overlook everything, but you want to just catch that one thing. <laughs> so um, that's why I really get a pleasure out of um, being able to help people solve crimes. Even e-discovery cases, it's good to have enough you know, evidence to show that, yes, that employee, for example, did that or that supervisor actually did that. So that's just my satis- personal satisfaction. And, and it helps me learn and grow as well. Yeah, and so you, you've written three books now, correct? Three and a fourth coming. Oh, so you have a fourth on the way. Excellent. Yes. All right. And so if someone wants to write a book, what is some advice you would give them about getting started with writing a book? You know, it's um, once you decide to write it, um, get started writing it. Get started on the process of writing it. Um, there was, I'm just a personal example where I had um, thought of writing a book on a certain topic that I was really working on. I mean, I did, I wrote some papers on it and I was really diving deep in it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll write a book on this. And I, I thought, yeah, I think I'm going to write a book on this. You know, and like three months later, I had written an outline. I thought I'd do it. And next thing I know, I uh, see a post in a forum that someone is already going to write a book on that and publish it. Right. And I went, oh my gosh, I'm too late. So I learned that um, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to start writing it and, you know, tell the world I'm going to write it. That's so if you're going to write a book, um, start, uh, get an outline, put the word out, find a publisher if you're going to publish it. And if you're going to self-publish it, make sure you have the word out so you can get input from the community, number one. And then you can kind of cut down on the competitors, right? Because if you're writing a book and someone else is writing the same book, um, both of you are not going to be happy because you're (laughs) both going to be writing the same topic. And no one really wants to do that. And I don't believe that any of us want to compete in that way where, um, well, my book's going to be better than yours. You know, I think it's better that we know oh, you're writing that book. I'm going to write it on the same thing, but different topic. So that's get it out there and, uh, and get started because if you don't, someone else will do it. Did you find, do you find writing books to be a, an easier time consuming process? Is it something that you naturally do? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, I, I don't even know why people write books because, uh, I mean, after the first couple of chapters, you're just going, oh, my gosh, why did I even get started with this? And then, you know, and, and when it's over, obviously, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm so glad that I did it. But most of it, the time, it's I really don't know why I started because it's hard work and you don't want to put just filler in pages. I mean, you have to put some content in there and some, whatever you whatever sentence you write, you have to make sure that it's correct and it's accurate. And in, in this field, in this forensics field, it's so easy to be off a little and attacked by anybody, right, for being wrong. So it's a tough job. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you, you also had some, uh, so I just want to touch on a couple a, a couple tweets and a blog post you had uh, recently that, that touched at the, you know, sometimes self-imposed kind of surveillance state that we live in. You know, does the kind of constant surveillance of you know, everything from your, your microwave to Alexa concern you? Do, you? do you think this leads to a heightened police state? It, I think it leads to a heightened turnkey police state. Um, I don't believe it leads to a, I don't believe it is a police state. And I only say that because, I, I mean, I, were, I was a federal task force officer um, for a few years, right? And, and the access to the programs there was just amazing. I mean, it was scarily amazing. And the things that we could do, you know, with legal authority obviously was incredible. But what I found was the, the uh, amount of things you can do and the amount of data that's available that you can get is overwhelming. 
for the government. And I, I believe that that's probably the saving grace of because there's so much data to go through it and find things and survey people for no reason whatsoever, just to have surveillance on people. I think that's kind of the preventative thing that saving grace we have is that there's so much data. But by the same token, you know, when technology really evolves that, you know, searching through so much data becomes, you know, instantaneous, then yeah, that's a turnkey uh, surveillance state when, particularly when you're giving third parties access to your personal information, such as Alexia or, you know, I mean, the government already has access to things you need for government permission, permission, like driving, business records, that sort of thing. But your personal information goes to the private companies and now government can easily grab that versus getting search warrants or, you know, subpoenas on individuals. Yeah, I found it interesting, you know, particularly in the last several years post, like, say, Snowden, where everybody kind of flipped out about what the NSA was collecting, yet people are so willing to accept the terms and conditions of something like a Facebook or what their smart TV's collecting or their Xbox and don't realize they're they're probably giving away much more in their personal lives uh, willingly than <laughs> that the government's trying to collect on them. It is. It, it, what comes into play is, I mean, the innocent person who doesn't do anything wrong, the chance that the government is going to accuse that person of a crime and find evidence of a crime is about slim to none. Because if you haven't done anything and there's no evidence, there's no, you're not a, a pedophile, there's no child pornography on your computer, and you don't even search for it on the internet – um, the odds of being charged for that are slim to none. However, if you are a criminal and you're doing those things, let's, let's say uh, child pornography, for example, and you're, you're searching for those terms and you're downloading those terms, then all that information that the criminal is putting up online through Facebook or you know, social media accounts, that comes crashing on top of them as evidence. So in that sense, it's, it's good because there's so much information that people willingly give that can be used against them in a criminal case. Um, but Still, it, there's always that fear, that cloud, that uh, it can happen to anybody and anyone can – because there are instances where, uh, you know, government employees have, you know, unlawfully looked at information, you know, phone records and that sort of thing. Sure. So that that's bothersome. Yeah. Well, Brett, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today to, to speak with me. What, where, where do you, what else are you up to today? You said you had a fourth book coming. Can you say what that's uh, going to be about? Sure. It's, it's, um, the title is Bitcoin Forensics. So um, Tim Carver, you know, Professor Carver, for those who've heard of uh, him before, he's uh, co-authoring it with me. And we have some con contributors as well. And it's we're just getting started, hoping to be done by next year in print next year. And it's not just on Bitcoin, but it's on, um, you know, cryptocurrency investigations, uh, you know, tracing, uh, you know, purchases through um, anonymous payments and and how to track them down and, and forensic analysis of the machines that are using, um, you know, cryptocurrency. So it, it's kind of a tough subject because uh, yeah, cryptocurrency is tough, you know, yeah. to investigate. But there are some things you can do and not knowing how to do any of them is a detriment to anyone who does those cases. So that's what the point of this book is to um, give more than enough information that when that case does come across your desk, um, you have a book that's already ready for you. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's obviously going to be an exciting and new new area that we're all going to have to deal with in the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and where, else, where else can people find you online and, and, and stuff? Uh, my website's uh, probably the easiest way is uh, Brett Shavers, one word, dot CC. And uh, it's, all, it's all there. Great. Yeah. And I'll be sure to put those uh, links in the show notes because you have a great blog up there. Uh, your, your Twitter's great to follow. I'll plug that as well. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, certainly. 
Well, I, again, thank you for taking the time to speak to me today, Brett. I greatly enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did as well. I did. My pleasure. And uh, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.